Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Today we'll go back in time, the seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Swick Enterprises, and we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia. You can find us on the web at GridironGreatsMagazine.com. It is at this time I'd like to introduce my special guest co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia and card collector and historian that has one of the most advanced collections in the country of pre-World War II items, in particular of the 1925 Pottsville Maroons. I'd like to welcome to our show Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff! Welcome to the show. Hey, Bob. Great to be here. Glad you mentioned the Maroons, as always. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the uh, last-minute fill-in Joe's book this week. And uh, I've been anxious to get on to a open forum show talking about a few different things in two areas of the hobby, and that's our plan for, to- for today's show. And I'm going to lead off by asking um, – you were at the National Sports Collectors Convention this past summer in Atlantic City. So as I, we talked, had a meal together, I'm going to hand off to you and ask you, what were your feelings, impressions, both good and bad, for the show this year? Uh, yes, the, the national, the natty, as we call it, right? I love the natty, so... <laughs> 
you know, of course, it was in Atlantic City, as you, you've covered before, and, and that's always an interesting location, as you know. Um, there's people that like Atlantic City, and there's quite a few collectors and dealers that just really don't care for it. Um, I don't mind it personally because I can drive to it. And that, that's always great, right? Uh, it's nice to yep, drive to yep. the show instead of fly. Um, but I understand the logistics is tough for dealers. Uh, I thought it was good. Uh, first and foremost, for me, I mean, I'm I'm biased. The, the National, to me, is like a homecoming weekend or a family reunion, right? I mean, it's really about reconnecting with friends, you know, talking about the hobby, seeing people you maybe only see that one, you know, week of the year. So, you know, to mm-hmm. me, the, the good is, is always there because it's catching up with old friends, talking about, you know, the collectibles we love and just um, having a good time and enjoying the hobby. Um, so that's always good. Um, now, I, I thought the show was pretty well attended. I was there from Wednesday to Friday, so I, I didn't make it through the weekend. I know you, you did, uh, but I yep. thought Wednesday yep. through Friday, you know, the, the floor was crowded. There was energy. It was vibrant. Um, you know, lot, lots of, you know, kind of edging your way through sets of people you know, in the aisles. So, I mean, I think it was well attended. I don't know what the final numbers were, but I think um, for our hobby, that's always a good thing, right? I think it's good when, right. when the national is is very well attended and there's lots of energy. Um, certainly lots of, lots of things to look at. I don't know what the final dealer count was in terms of how many, you know, dealers were there, but it took me all of Wednesday, which is kind of my metric, and my goal is always get walk the entire show all the way through on Wednesday during the, the premiere goes from four to eight. So I kind of see what's there and then I circle back first thing Thursday morning, prioritize and try to get, you know, to where I want to go first. And it took me all of Wednesday to get through it. So that's pretty typical. I think it was well attended mm-hmm. uh, for, well, in I terms think, of dealers I, as well. I think to add to your point, since you were there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we did basically uh, talk all three days, Saturday mm-hmm. and Sunday. Saturday was pretty well attended. Sunday, I was I was kind of surprised how few people were there. It was very, very mm-hmm. light of a crowd, and I pretty much saw um, a lot of dealers were packing up right at noontime, uh, 1 o'clock, and I get it. Uh, I basically stayed till roughly 2.30, 3 o'clock. And because uh, I was flying out on uh, Monday morning, so I had extra time. But at the point after, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, it was worthless because there was nobody walking by the table or anything like that. What I found interesting um, was for this crowd, and I haven't done a national since uh, 2019. For this national, and the last time I did the national Atlantic City, I had a lot of people that were hit or miss as far as if they saw something on the table, they'd say they'd be back. Or I would have the the collector or the dealer or whoever say, yeah, I got to buy this right now. You know, can you? Here's the cash. I'll put it put it behind your table. I'll pick it up later. Type of thing. So I thought that was a little different one way or the other. Mm. Um, the the noise level was just incredible there. Uh, just from the way we were situated, um, it was there was some sort of special contest going on like parallel down from us, and uh, it was pretty pretty loud to say the least. I 
unfortunately only got to go around a, a, a part of the of the show. It was just impossible to get around uh, with the amount of people going by the table. So I couldn't just leave the table per se. So, but I did go to a couple yeah. uh, of d- different tables and see some stuff. So it was pretty interesting in, in that manner. Um, but in any event, it, it Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I will agree with you. It was it was a mass of people there. It really was crowded, yeah. which was a good sign, I thought. Um, the one thing, the one thing, and and again, you know, you you had a pretty good handle walking around looking at things. I was kind of shocked to see the sheer volume of graded cards everywhere, and younger kids, teenagers, younger, you know, guys in their early twenties. Walking around with the, you know, with the backpack or the little carrying case with all their graded cards going from table to table, would you want to buy your trade, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the cards were just basketball, a handful of baseball, mm. handful of football, but the, the bulk of it was, was basketball. And I don't know if you, you saw the same thing I saw, but it was uh, really amazing to, to see that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, and basketball has been hot. Now, recently, I, I do think some of it has cooled, um, along with, well, you know, other modern things. We'll talk about modern in a bit, but I agree with you also on yeah. the noise. I put that in my bad list, you know, because, I mean, it's, I, it's one of the reasons when I go to Chantilly, I try to go on Friday, and it's not because I'm right. going to skip work, but that's always good. Um, it's really because they don't have the <laughs> autograph barkers who are, you know, yelling at people to get in line for all the autographs that are being given out because that doesn't happen until Saturday. And it's just, it's so hard to talk and hear people when you've got constant yelling, barking, screaming going on at shows. And the national is is bad. I mean, there's no doubt it's bad. Um, And and it's a tricky thing to deal with, right? I mean, my my company, we run a couple of conferences, and, you know, the, the dealers, the sponsors, you know, the exhibitors, you know, they, they're a yep. big part of the show, and, and without them, the shows don't happen, right? And so I right, get a right, couple dealers right. or a couple of hobbyists, a couple of collectors said to me, you know, they should just put all those people in another room. Well, that's great for the hobbyists. That's not going to fly with the sponsors, right? right. I mean, they want right. the right. foot traffic. They want people coming by. That's what they're paying for is people seeing their brand, people stopping and talking to them. And if they're out of the way, that doesn't happen. And so it's kind right. of a, you know, a pro and con. I, would, I do wish they would figure out some way to reduce the volume, maybe <laughs> set some volume yep. limits. Yep. On some of those things yeah. or something, because to your point, it is really hard to hear. Yeah, yeah, and and what I find find interesting over the years, and I've been to a lot of nationals. I think they got it got it together finally where the autograph guest star. They've separated them. It mm-hmm. took them several yeah. years to figure out how to separate all the box breaking dealers who have to announce yeah. what they you know pull out of the pack. So that's kind of separated one way or the other. The one thing that mm-hmm. I found interesting, com- compare this to the last national, there's, there seemed to me, and I, and I could be wrong, it seemed greater corporate exhi- exhibits dealers slash dealers than the actual dealers. Now, I could be completely wrong in my my uh, view of it, but just seeing the last national in 2016 in Atlantic City, we had we were literally on the opposite side of the floor 
and um, the box breakers were behind us. The corporate were like way down the the center, and the autograph guests were after them, which is uh, the autograph guests were mm-hmm. in the same location, I think, as they were in 2016. So I thought that was interesting. So I, I just got a feeling they had more corporate that, than regular dealers, and because of that, that's what happened with regards to why it became so loud at the same time. I could be wrong, but uh, no, yeah, that, I know that's a, a good couple, point. A couple of hobbyists told me the same thing. They should be in a separate room, and I just, you know, I let it go because I knew. I know. I mean, I know it too. They they, they got to get the corporate sponsorship to put this thing on one way or the other. But uh, it, it was kind of, kind of uh, weird and kind of uh, loud. And by by Sunday, I was ready to go home. I put it that way, you know. And then I don't <laughs> yeah. think it would have been a big deal, but. I don't. I honestly don't think now it would have been a big deal if I if I left Saturday night. You know what I mean? And flew home Sunday. But uh, yeah, it's neither here you nor there. Last time I did. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say you mentioned the corporate dealers. The other thing I noticed, which was interesting, is different types of corporate sponsors and dealers. I mean, they were like insurance companies giving out loans for right. you to buy. You know these high end you know, expensive cars. I saw some loan companies. I saw all sorts of different approaches to grading, you know, from, you know, it just seems like grading companies are popping up um, and and just a a wide variety of, you know, things you hadn't seen in the past necessarily at the national. So they're they're either really reaching for more sponsors or, or people, a new, new, types of sponsors are showing up wanting to get in front of, you know, the hobby. So that, I thought that was cool. Sure. And I, I can't leave the national without saying that the other good thing, of course, was the yearly vintage football community, BFC pizza dinner. Can't forget that. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know, that yep. was, that yep. was fun. Yep. That was awesome. Yeah. It was, we had a good time. That was, uh, you know, and it's, and to your point where you said, you know, seeing people once a year, uh, I normally set up with Josh Adams uh, Midwest Sports Cards. Long story short, I, like I said to George, to Josh as we were leaving, as he was leaving because he had to get a flight out, I said to him, you know, I saw you on Wednesday. We basically picked up talking like we talked three years ago. I haven't seen him in three years. And I said, we just mm-hmm. picked up the conversation from where we left off. And it was, uh, you know, that's the way it is with a lot of these guys over the years. And I do agree with you 110%. The so nice to see friends who I haven't seen in, in, you know, in the year, or I just may talk to them occasionally on the phone, text message, email, whatever. It, it was nice to see them in person, talk to them. Um, for example, I got to talk to Chris Willis that once, so that was nice. And talked about his new book. Yeah. Um, I did talk to, for the first time in years, and I told him I haven't seen him in, I don't know how many years, Steve Galetta, uh, who yeah. set up at the show, well-known football hobbyist, football dealer, and um, we got caught up on things. I did make a special trip down to his area because he came up to my, my table because he wanted to find where I was. And I, Like I said to him, I haven't, I probably haven't seen him since White Plains and, I don't know, the, mm. the uh, late 90s, uh, early zeros wow. uh, at a show there. So it's been a long time. I've known Steve for a long time, back to, mm. going back to the 80s when, when football exploded. So, anyways, uh, it, it's it's that camaraderie. It's the the, the nicety of, of seeing guys I see once a year, 
And uh, I think that's what makes the show more special. I will uh, say very clearly, uh, I have less problem in a way going to Chicago, to Rosemont for the national there. I just think the logistics of getting in and out of there are much easier than in Atlantic City, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you stay, so on and so forth. But Chicago is easy to stay there and get in, you know, get out of the hotel and just walk across the street and you're there. And it's, it's, it's an easier, easier time. And I know it's easier for some dealers also at the the same time. So it'll be interesting to interesting for me to see what's going to happen in the future with regards to if they're going to go back to Atlantic City, because now Cleveland is reopening, and I believe they're going to schedule one in Cleveland. I'm not sure, though. So, um, And Cleveland Cleveland is doable one way or the other, and, I, and because I'm in North Carolina now, I'll probably drive to Cleveland uh, rather than fly there. It's not, not that bad of a, right. of, a, of a drive one way or the other. It's not, it shouldn't be a bad drive for you either, so. Um, no, but long story I like short, driving to Cleveland. Easy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, long story short, I, I I think the national showed a lot of strength in the hobby. I also was concerned with a lot of people saying that they, um, you know, they were working on certain sets raw. They couldn't find the cards there. Uh, so on and so forth that, you know, they didn't want to buy the slab cards. So I, again, you're putting out a lot of money for the national table for all your expenses, your hotel, your food, so on and so forth. You got to be selective in what you're what you're bringing and what you're not bringing. So that presents an issue for some dealers and for collectors too when they're going there. Because again, we've always said if it's not at the national, it probably doesn't exist. So, uh, but uh, again, things change over the years, and now if you don't find it on the internet, that it probably doesn't that exist. Type of thing. So. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, yeah, it does look like that's, that's, um, Cle- Cleveland's in the rotation now. They did announce Cleveland will be 2024. So Chicago okay. next year, right. Cleveland 24, back to Chicago in 25. No mention of Atlantic right. City. Okay. Yeah, I got a feeling they're going to uh, put Atlantic City on the back burner, and they'll be the mm-hmm. be the um, last resort type of place, one way or the other. And again, you get you still get the argument. From the West Coast Steelers, why don't we? Why don't they do one on the West Coast? Why don't they do one in Texas, uh, Vegas, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth? And again, I, I'm not going to get into the the arguments on that one way or the other. I think you know they the the people who put on the show are looking for the best financial and economic situation for them. Chicago has seemed to be, you know, the place to go, the midpoint of the country. Blah blah blah, and that's why they're. They continue to have it there, one way or the other. But overall, yeah, I feel great like, seeing everybody. I feel kind of like the West Coast. The only way they're ever going to get a big show is somebody else starts one up and makes a run at it. I I agree with you. Right. I mean, I don't see, given the the location of the dealers, and you've seen the maps too that show where all the dealers from the yeah. national come from, and it's it's very heavy yeah. Midwest and East. You just don't have that yeah. much in the West, and I think they're really afraid of what the turnout would be out west. Right, right, right. And again, the only national I believe was in Anaheim years ago, and mm-hmm. uh, all the, they ended up shutting it down because of because of uh, fire fire code restrictions. They had so many people trying to get in, and mm. um, that kind of put a damper on it for the for the rest of the rest of the show. But anyways, 
Hey, Tristan, great to see everybody. Great dinner. I, I had several dinners I went to that week, and uh, nice seeing everybody, nice visiting with everybody, and I was very, very happy when I landed on Monday morning <laughs> and handed it home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, 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 a long, long five days, there, to say the least. All right, next topic I want to touch briefly on. Jeff, in your opinion, what's hot and what's not in our football collecting world October 4th, 2002? Yeah, well, I mean, modern continues to be hot, as we know. It's down in football, like it's down. I think it's down most in basketball from what I've, I've read and heard. It's down in baseball, too football but boy some of the prices those modern cards are still getting is just astronomical you know I I won't pick on Justin Herbert you know quarterback of the Chargers Um, he's a phenomenal player and he was on my (laughs) fantasy team and I won the VFC fantasy uh, championship last year with him guiding my team so I'm never going to badmouth Justin Herbert again (laughs) I'm a fan for life you know but the prices that are being thrown around for someone like a Justin Herber, who's clearly a star, but so far away from the Hall of Fame that you look at the prices and you just shake your head trying to figure out how in the world, with all the risks in football, you're going to bet that he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame and you're going to put down the money you're putting down now, um, hoping to get a return. Is I, it, I just don't understand it. To me, personally. I mean, I, I I feel like it's a game of hot potato is what I've been calling it recently. I used to call it gambling. I like hot potato better mm-hmm. because, you know, mm-hmm. these prices at some point, you know, maybe he gets hurt tomorrow. Maybe, you know, who knows what happens. Maybe he decides he's going to be like Andrew Luck and just like say, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm done with football. It's dangerous. I don't want to, you know, wake up when I'm 60 and, you know, have – all sorts of medical conditions, whatever, right? Or maybe he just, you know, people right, figure him right. out and he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't pan out ultimately and he ends up being a really good player but not a, a super great player. Uh, if somebody's going to mm-hmm. be left with that potato in their hand and it's going to be a very expensive potato, <laughs> you know? Right, and right, I just right, don't, right. you know, it reminds me of, you know, the stock market when the stock market goes crazy and you just look at the kind of earnings per share that some of these companies are trading at, and anybody in the financial industry will tell you there's just no economics behind it that justify the right. prices. It's really just a can I buy it and then unload it before somebody, you know, before it all blows up. And that's hot potatoes, right. what it is, or musical chairs, one or the other. Pick your favorite childhood game, you know, where ultimately somebody's going to lose, <laughs> you know. Right, 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 right. Well, I I. I definitely agree with you. Um, and again, I, it, it's beyond comprehension to me. And I always use the example. I would not put a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000 in a card. I want to put $10,000 mm-hmm. in a card either. Mm-hmm. And to me, the you're right. The risk of it is so great. And then I look at it and I say to myself and I, and I, Joe and I talked about this on on the show a couple of shows ago. Uh, yes. You want to corner the market on Tom Brady, uh, whatever that card is with the with his original autograph, that rookie card that sold for one and a half million dollars or whatever. So you want to corner mm-hmm. the market on say ten ten come to the market. You, if you're putting out that kind of money, uh, and maybe you have a net worth of a hundred million, two hundred million, whatever. 
you're going to corner the market and you say, for $15 million, I own 10 of these cards, of which there's only 100 of them. So I own 10% of the market. I control 10% of the market. So that could be a, you know, a logical argument in one respect, but at the same time, mm-hmm. at what price does the 1.5 million become 1.6 million, 1.7 million? Is there going to be a greater demand in the long run? And again, he's not having, uh, he's having a good season, but he's not having the best season. And again, if, yeah. if the bucks end up going, you know, 10 and seven or 11 and six and get knocked out of the playoffs, the first round or whatever, don't even make the playoffs. You got to say to yourself, Tom, you were on top of the world. What what was the point of going for that extra year? What were you trying to prove? And again, I, to me, I, don't, I really don't know what he's trying to prove this season because he's definitely not, you know, uh, to me, he's not 100% on the field, especially looking at the Packers game. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't the, you know, the, the gem perfection Tom Brady that we all know type of thing. So anyways, yeah. getting back yeah. to the value, value of the card, Again, card worth one point five million. Well, technically, yes, because somebody paid one point five million for it. Can it yeah. be maintained in the future? No one knows. No one knows that that one point five million dollar card may now be a two hundred thousand dollar card. You know, there could be you know a, a two million dollar card. That's the big the big game that everybody's playing. And the the one thing, and I go back to the national. The one thing that I found incredible watching and seeing were these young guys with their backpacks pulling out these graded basketball cards of um, Jordan, of uh, LeBron James, and, you know, asking for like two, $3,000 for the card. And I, I, I'm cool mm-hmm. with basketball. I really, I, I, I don't know one from the <laughs> other. One. And I'm, I'm like, I'm just looking at the transactions, and I'm, and I'm just shaking my head, and I'm saying, holy mackerel. I, I, I am just shocked at what I'm seeing. And, again, it's good and bad. Because, again, tech collectors, I didn't see a lot of them. I was happy for the ones that actually stopped at my table. But at the same time, I, I really didn't see a lot of people with a lot of want lists as far as, you know, I'm putting together uh, whatever, 1977 top football set, you have any commons type of thing. You see, you should have seen more of it, but to me, you saw less of it. And maybe those smaller shows are picking up the set collectors more than the the, the bigger shows. I could be completely wrong, but, you know, I, I throw that out at the same time. So, anyways, um, all right, so getting back, getting back to our original topic, we're seeing a decline. Are we in a bubble now, which is the second part of the, of the question that we're looking at? What, what is the bubble? Is there one? Uh, you know, what, what is actually going on? Your thoughts. Yeah, well, I think we were definitely in a bubble during the pandemic. I mean, what we saw happen between, you know, March of 2020 and, you know, let's say mid-year 2021 was an incredible increase in almost everything, right? I mean, everything was so hot because everybody was at home and bored to tears. The stock market was rolling. People were looking where they wanted to put money. Um, and yep. that was definitely a bubble. Now that uh, we seem to have lost Jeff, um, he'll be coming on in a second. But anyways, uh, yeah, we're going along with what Jeff was saying as far as the um, the um, problems of the pandemic. 
uh, with people having a lot of extra time on the on the um, you know bored out of their minds trying to figure out what to do, it did create a, a very very large run up as far as our um, cost uh, as far as the cost of a lot of different cards. So we could say now that people are back to work, things are more normal, people are traveling again, so on and so forth. We've seen a big change in the market, especially with the Martin market. Change in the Martin market uh, has basically showing and creating a situation where prices are coming down based upon it. So, again, we've seen a lot of people talk about it. I uh, talked about this at once at the National uh, with regards to different types of cards uh, losing value way overpriced and really uh, what's going to happen in the future, how are things going to uh, pan out, what's going to shake out is going to be uh, very interesting to see. All right, uh, while we're waiting for Jeff to get back, if you're not a subscriber to Gridiron Greats Magazine, what are you waiting for? Check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We're the only publication in North America that focuses on the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. So check us out on the web, become a subscriber, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Our new issue is coming out over the next couple of weeks, uh, issue number 78. We've got a lot of great articles in it. Uh, we're doing a tribute to Len Dawson, the great Kansas City quarterback who uh, is uh, who recently has passed away. Great, great uh, individual, great guy, uh, both on and off the field. So we have uh, Martin Jacobs did an article on him as a tribute to him. We got a couple other excellent articles, uh, and we have a new writer coming out who's going to be talking about some junk wax gems, and um, we're going to get into the world of the early 90s, of the junk wax era for football. Uh, the one thing I was kind of a uh, very, very surprised about uh, with regards to junk wax. Jeff, you there? I am here. Oh, okay. All right. I lost you. Don't know what happened. All of a sudden, it just, uh, uh, the connection dropped. If you can remember where you left off, uh, long story short, we were talking about the bubble. I gave a couple of points looking at uh, at the bubble itself. So, any any thoughts about that again, um, as far as what we're looking at with the with the bubble? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about. Um, <clears throat> I started to talk about. I don't know if you heard much of it. Kind of what's happening in vintage football. Um, I feel like vintage has held up pretty well. Um, that we were definitely right. in a bubble during the pandemic. Vintage held up well. Um, oddball sets, I think, are struggling. Oddball items are struggling. You know, anything that's not a star player or a rookie card seems to have gone down much more than, obviously, the, the superstars have. Um, right, right. And I, I feel like photos, tickets, and programs, uh, the prices have escalated quite a bit and have stayed really good. 
and I always felt like those were underappreciated items anyway, and and maybe they're finally getting some appreciation. I don't know what you think about that, but the, particularly the early the early NFL programs, you know, photos of players who don't have cards from you know pre-war, you know, that are that are out yep. there, type one photos. Those are escalating in price still. I feel like. Well, I think I think they're finally being recognized for the reasons you've mentioned. And also at the same time, a lot of collectors have matured in their collections. So they're looking for something else and it's a natural progression. I've always wondered why, uh, and I'll, I'll jump ahead a little on our script today, why publications are so unloved at the hobby. And again, I get the argument all the time. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have the room for them, so on and so forth. I, I understand that. I fully understand that. But at the same time, there's certain publications especially if you're a team collector, you're a player collector, you are a uh, college, specific college collector, there's a lot of great stuff to collect in the, in the area of publication. So, uh, again, yeah. I really don't understand understand why they're, they're so beat up. But to your point of tickets and, and programs, I am just shocked in a way to see, especially pre-World War II items, going through the roof the way they have. And now finally seeing a lot of 50s and 60s stuff, Gaining, gaining traction and gaining more appreciation at the same time. So uh, that's great for the hobby. And um, like you said, there's a lot of, you know, player photos you don't have, for players who don't have cards or whatever found in these programs. Yeah. And you're, you're, reading his, you're reading history. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And then again, as we become more and more of a paperless society, you know, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm digging, I'm digging into the ground even more fighting for paper because, uh, yeah. you know, they're they're less and less collectibles for a game when you go to a game, especially with tickets being on a phone, uh, programs mm-hmm. being online, media guides being online, so on and so forth. Uh, it's just it's astounding to me to see what's actually happening. So, uh, you know, is it good for the hobby? No, but it is you know it's reality right now more than anything else. So, but again, publications uh, to me are way overlooked. And, uh, again, seeing some of the uh, publications that I saw at the National and a couple of dealers who were actually selling them, uh, they kind of echoed my sentiment, too, that, you know, it's only for, you know, superstar cover and or a pre-war, you know, pre-World War II item. Um, still great demand for it one way or the other. And then uh, another dealer said to me he saw a lot of pickup in 1950s stuff, which is a good sign also. But uh, and again, I also look at some of these pro magazines, seventy to eighty-two, basically. That's a great collectible, you know, and yeah. because you have you have re- really good articles in there, and you have uh, you know you really have a lot of historical information with regards to um, the game, the games played, players, player features, so on and so forth. So I find that to be uh, something that um, is overlooked at the same time, which will hopefully pick up interest in, in the long run. All right, moving moving along here, what did you pick up? What's new in your collection since we last talked? I know you got some nice items that uh, you picked up over the past uh, year or so. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. and I always have to go back and remind myself what I picked up, you know, <laughs> uh, just when it, when it happened and what it was. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because I do tend to. I mean, I'm working on mentioning oddball. I'm working on a lot of oddball sets, and 
and a lot I have a lot of projects going on, so I got a lot of stuff in motion. A lot of that stuff is is not um you know necessarily things that most collectors are focused on, as mentioned the oddball stuff is is kind of um not something that's hugely popular, but I like it. I think a few of the yep. things I yep. would highlight <clears throat> that I'm really excited about getting one is that I've been working away as you know on an autographed set of the 1955 Topps All-American set. I've <laughs> been working on this for almost a decade now. Uh, it's one of the only – I'm not a big autograph person. I have some autographs here and there, but it's not a focal point. But And I don't remember how, but I just really always loved the All-American set and at some point decided I was going to – I'm not a graded person either, but I decided I was going to do a high-grade – Tops All-American set, and I was going to try to start collecting autograph cards from that set. And I completed the high-grade set, all eights, probably four or five years ago now. So that's been done for a long time. <clears throat> but the autograph <laughs> set is obviously challenging. There's players in that set that, you know, because it was a tribute set and included, you know, players from, you know, decades past, there are uh, 12 players in the set out of 100 that, you can't get autographed because they had already passed away, including obviously Thorpe. That would have been an incredible card to have as an autograph 55 Thorpe. But yep, if you yep, see one out yep, there, collectors, yep. it is definitely fake <laughs> since he died in 53. <laughs> um, so there's 88 that you can obtain. Now there's a lot of speculation about does every, uh, well, there are, aren't necessarily known to exist with an autograph on them. You know, general consensus right. is high 70s, low 80s. Uh, I know the College mm-hmm. Hall of Fame has a near-complete set. They're right around 80-ish. Um, so I was fortunate enough, I, I hardly ever see them, but I but I picked up a couple of them in the last year, the big one being Benny Friedman, who obviously is a Hall of Famer. Wow. And um, yep. that was one that I, I had actually never seen a Benny Friedman before. And um, another collector, actually someone on VFC, was kind enough, knew I was working on the set, and said, hey, I've had this for a very long time, and, you know, I think maybe it belongs in your collection. And so we worked a deal out a deal out for that. Great. Um, and then Great. there's another Great. collector on VFC that focuses on the set. He's trying very diligently to catch me. He's doing a great job. <laughs> but I'm up to 68 <laughs> that, are, that are autographed. Wow. So I'm I'm probably within ten or twelve or so, may, maybe of you know all that are known to exist. Hopefully more will emerge, but um, Friedman well, got me up to up, up close to seventy. Well, it's interesting that you you mentioned that. I had a conversation with uh, a dealer years ago about that, and I I was hoping they were going to bring up that you picked up the the Friedman curve, which you did. And he said, and I want to say the time frame was probably between 2006 and 2008. I I didn't write it down in my notes. But he said he always thought there were 79 signatures that could be obtained. And that Mm -hmm. number always stuck in my mind. And now this is from, you know, 15, 16 years ago that he said it. Uh, I've also heard the arguments that there could be in the low 80s or it could actually be Mm -hmm. the 88. And again, that's mm-hmm. a viable argument too. At the same time, so uh, again, it'll be inter- It would be really interesting to see, you know, if somebody does have the full eighty-eight, and or you know, if you end up getting the full eighty-eight uh, down the road, 
at at the same time. But uh, that that's a heck of a a heck of a uh, attempt on a set that is is brutal to collect, and uh, scarcity of it, the age of it, the condition of it, amazing, truly amazing. So my hat's off to you on having sixty eight of those signatures right now. That's 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 incredible. Thanks. Yeah, the one card I'd like to upgrade, which will probably never happen, is, of course, the Four Horsemen card. Uh, is one of my favorite cards in that set. And the College yeah. Hall of Fame. I had heard a rumor that there was one of those cards that had all four of the horsemen signed on it. <laughs> and the it ended up in the College Football Hall of Fame set that was donated to them. So they have one that has all four signatures on them, which is just incredible to me. It's got to be one of one of one. I can't imagine that many of those were ever, you know, that was ever accomplished. Right. Um, and my, mine has Don Miller, so I do have the the four horsemen autograph with Don Miller's autograph. It's just a single autograph on that card. Um, so that yeah, I like that set. The other thing I picked up, and I got this actually at the national, was some glass negatives of images of the Crescent Athletic Club, which was an 1800s athletic club, one of the early and first pretty well-known pro football clubs, you know, that started to emerge in the 1800s. And um, I got three glass negatives of that, one a team picture and two of kind of action shots. Well, one's an action Mm -hmm. shot, one's of a player, but you can see some action happening behind them. Um, which are really cool. The real cool thing, though, is two of them have Harry Beecher on it. He played for that mm-hmm. team after he played at Yale. Um, and, and you know, I, I'm always on the lookout for, you know, 1800s college stars who played some pro ball, you know, kind of origins of professional football. I like pre-NFL pro football stuff. And so I was pretty excited about, you know, finding those and getting those. I've never seen those mm-hmm. before either, which was cool. Yeah. And it did remind me, by the way, that I and I always look and check. You know, Harry Beecher still holds the record for the most touchdowns scored by a Yale player. We may have talked about this before, but Yale doesn't right. recognize right. his record. He's he's right. not considered right. the record holder. They because he's quote too old, I guess is their argument, or it wasn't football or whatever no, their it's... argument is. But that. That annoys the heck out of me, quite honestly, because uh, he was a superstar, one of the first superstars in our sport. And um, the fact that he still has more touchdowns than any Yale player, considering how many games they've added, considering how many, what, 100 yep. and, whatever it is, 40 years, it's just yep. astounding, yep. and I wish he would get more attention for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I, I'm – turned off to Ivy League football now. I, I don't even follow Yale anymore. And I, that was my, you know, that was me, you know, and I, and going going to games, so on and so forth. But the, the whole program, their their whole athletic program to me in the Ivy League has is, is really gone so way down, it's not even funny. And that's always been an argument with, with several collectors and historians, especially college football historians, uh, when it comes to Yale. And again, because Yale is de-emphasizing and all the Ivy Leagues are de-emphasizing sports now. They, they're just going to yeah. let it go by the wayside type of thing. But I, I agree with you that that should be recognized by and could be capitalized on 
and bring back strength to the program, the the uh, football program of the Ivy League. But it's it basically ignored now, and it's uh, it's yeah. sad to see. It's really really sad to see. But uh, what else you got? Did you pick up if anything else uh, along the way? I I'm, I know you yeah. got the um, the autos. Yeah, yeah. So the the other thing I might highlight is um, uh, talking about photos. Speaking about photos, is I picked up this really nice type one photo of the Canton Bulldogs in action. Um, mm-hmm. The twenties photo, and right in the middle of it, you can't miss him because he's so huge. Is Fat, um, you know, Pete Henry, Fats Henry, uh, Hall of yep. Famer, yep. obviously. And it's just clear as day. He's looking right at the camera. <laughs> and uh, yep. I, I just thought it was a really cool um, photo of an early NFL team with a pro, you know, Hall of Famer right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the action um, mm-hmm. in Canton Stadium. Uh, just, a, you know, a classic, you know, pre-war photo that uh, I really think is really awesome. That sounds so I was great. happy to that pick, pick up that. I've picked up some Thorpe items. You know, I, obviously, I, I like Thorpe. I like Grange. I haven't really, I don't think, in the last year picked up any other um, Pottsville items. Obviously, I have the postcards and lots of other Pottsville memorabilia, but I haven't seen much out there Pottsville-wise, you know, out, in, out, out and about. Um, but I did... Uh, right. Did pick up some some nice um, some nice early oddball things here and there. I like and some Thorpe some Thorpe items and Grange items. Always on the lookout for those. Those are getting pricey though. I mean that's you know we talk about Hall of Famers, we talk about whatnot, and there's the cards. But then well, I'll tell you, Thorpe is red hot right now, and part of that's yep, probably because yep. of all the publicity with you know getting getting his medals back, getting his records back, getting you know, acknowledge for the Olympic champion that he he is. Um, that seems yep, to have yep. spiked spiked up. You know, all of his collectibles. Um, so that's good. That's good to hear. I'm, he should be he should be at the pinnacle of of the hobby, in my opinion, for football. Yeah. Yep. Um, and well, for a long know, time got, he got, he wasn't. You got you got Thorpe. You got Grange. You got Nagurski. And uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. to be those are the top. Top three big dogs. Um, I and I and to me, Nagurski. Um, you know, there's always going to be pressure and, and demand for the trickle card. And yes. you know, mm-hmm. anything else he has, especially programs, you know, from that time frame, because there's, there's really not sure. a lot of uh, paper items for him, one way or the other. So, uh, long story short, it, it's you're right. Uh, they should be up there, and they should start being pricey. They are. Uh, they are. In my opinion, very rare items uh, from the legends of the game, and that's what it comes down to. And again, we'll put it put it in perspective one more time. Pay one and a half million dollars for a Brady item, or would you pay one and a half million dollars for some rare, obscure Thorpe item? You know, that's the way you got to. You know, that's the perspective in a way you should be. You know, people or collectors should be looking at things, but it seems to be in the inverse. You know. I know Brady. I know he's hot. I will pay the money for whatever it is, type of thing. Even though there's millions of things you can collect from him, you know what I mean. Whereas yeah. you have a, yeah, a no very, very very limited limited amount of stuff to collect, 
which is becoming more, like you said, and I agree, rarer and rarer to try to find anything. So that's that's, that's amazing. Well, those are great pickups, Jeff. And you know, again, oddball. I don't. I, I know there there's a, a slight downturn in oddball uh, card sets and stuff like that. It'll be interesting to see if and when that picks up again. I think it will down the road, but I think it'll be more for the individual players, teams. Um, Team type collectors finding you know uh, cards out of let's say an MSA disc set or a Seven Eleven set, whatever the case may be, It'll be interesting to see. What do you have on your want list? Ooh. Yeah, so one thing I didn't mention that I picked up this past year is and I know you're familiar with them. In the late seventies, Seven Eleven put out some three D. Uh, very small 3D images of various sports figures from various sports. Uh, they go by different names, Magic Motion, Exograph. Um, they're really hard mm-hmm. to find. And I got, I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to snag um, a, a lot of them that came up on eBay. And one of my goals in, in, you know, that I'm looking for is I'd like to complete that set. Um, but the, the challenge there is nobody knows what that means. Because, for instance, in this particular lot that I picked up, there were two of them that were on nobody's checklist that I could find. Um, so they were unknown to the hobby. And and the question is, well, how many are there? And I don't think anybody knows for sure. Um, those are definitely a number one on my list. And what was interesting, and we don't yet know how they're related, <clears throat> is another collector, uh, actually another VFC collector, um, found and, and bought some uh, the exact same 3D images that are on the 7-Eleven um, Exagraph cards, but they're round, and they have two holes punched in right. them. Um, they look mm-hmm. like old-school kind of shoelace tags, uh, but <clears throat> can't figure out if they really are or not. They're clearly from the same company. They're, they're the exact same images. And interestingly, mm-hmm. in that lot that he bought, there was, I believe – one or maybe even two other images that have not been seen on the um, 7-Eleven set. So speculation, of course, is, well, they probably used all the exact same images, so those are probably out there somewhere as well that haven't been identified. And one of them was a football player. Um, It's a wide receiver catching a ball. Now the shoelace tags or whatever we want to call them, they, are, they don't have any writing on the back. The, the 7-11s have a little description of the player, so you know who the player is on the front. And mm-hmm. so we don't know who the wide receiver is because nobody, as far as I know, has ever seen that in a square um, 7-11 format where it would tell you who the player right. was. You know, they were all 70s. Right. My guess is it's either Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, or Drew Pearson. I mean, those are kind of the three big – you know, wide receivers from the 70s that you think of as, you know, the iconic players. And uh, pretty much all the the, the, the players on these, these 3D cards are all the superstars from the, you know, mid to late 70s. It's O.J. Simpson and Wilt Chamberlain and, you know, <clears throat> players like that that are on it. So I'm guessing it's one of them, but, you know, at this point we don't know. So I'm, I'm actively yeah. looking for those. I would love to. I would love to find some more of those. They are so rare. Some some say they are the rarest. It is the rarest set in the 70s, which is puzzling, right, about why is this set from – I mean, 7-Eleven was a very large, well-known, um, you know, company. 
Everybody as a kid mm-hmm. loved their Slurpees, still do. Um, why are these so rare? Was it test, just test marketed? Probably. Um, you know, there was an article written on these, and the, the author said that, you know, as far as they could tell, all of the ones that he was aware of had come from kind of the, the Northeast. Um, a part of the United States. But when I contacted the seller of the ones that I bought on eBay, I bought a, bought the lot on eBay, he told me a different story for his. He 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 remembers going to 7-Eleven and getting them. They were on the bottom mm-hmm. of Slurpee cups underneath a kind of a false bottom. Uh, that's how they distributed yeah. them. But he would lived in California. So they yeah. had definitely test marketed these on the West Coast as well. Um, that was the first yeah, I I'd heard that. I don't ever remember seeing those at a Seven Eleven, and I pretty and I pretty much mm-hmm. had one on uh, the town next to me. So any chance I got in the seventies, I'd go there to try to pick up the at that time the the the, um, the Slurpee cups. They actually had the cups with the players on them, so on and so forth. I had no recollection yeah. of that. I'd never saw those before. Uh, to yeah. your point, also. With regards to rare stuff of the 70s, I always saw the 1979 uh, Icy Bear uh, disc of mm. football players is a mid, to me is a Midwestern regional set, and I have no clue, and I, and I pretty much gave up trying to figure out how many different players were in the set. Um, I've seen yeah. different checklists on, and, and they never matched one way or the other. Mm. So, again, was that you know just a test issue, test marketed issue, whatever? Uh, amazing to see, you know, that's a, being an unknown. But this is, to me, by far and wide, much more rare and much more um, unknown in the collecting market. So it's a, that's a great pickup, to say the least. It's amazing, truly amazing. Hey, anything else you're looking for? Yeah, some of the oddball sets I'm trying to work on um, also include the Lake to Lake Packers. I know you know that set well. Um, you know, yep. that, that's just a fun set. It's not hugely hard. I don't think I just never got around to it. One thing that I did pick mm-hmm. up recently was, um, a printing block of the Boyd Deller card that's in that. So it's, um, you know, the okay. block they used to print, uh, those cards. It actually has green ink, like on the sides of it and all over it. It's really yep. cool. I just thought it was a neat yep. companion piece, right? To, to the set. Um, so I, I snagged that. I am working on the cons, cons wieners, um, you know, cards. Some of those are really tough. I just hadn't ever gotten around to focusing on the con sets either. Those are some oddball mm-hmm. sets that I'm kind of focusing, focusing attention on as well. And then um, you know, two from the 80s. So I've, you know, you you kind of got me go really rolling on looking at the oddball stuff from the 70s and the 80s, Bob with some of the stuff that I acquired from your collection, you know, I hadn't really spent a lot of time on the seventies and eighties other than all the mainstream stuff, which I got, you know, a lot as a kid and then, then finished up pretty quickly, but man, there's some great stuff in the seventies and eighties out there for football. And, you know, a couple I'm working on currently, I'm trying to build the master set of the McDonald's, the 1986 McDonald's cards, which I love those images. Fantastic images. I've had the complete yep. set for a while, but of course they come in four colored tabs. And so I decided a while yep. ago, what the heck? Why don't I just try to get them all? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm working on those. And I'm also working on the 7 Eleven uh, round um, 
you know, sets from 83 and 84 of um, yeah. football players. So um, I think I just completed that newsflash because um, in the, the collector's connection auction that just ended the other night, you know, Scott and Brian Russell's yeah. auction, which in my opinion right now is the best. You know, the auction they just had was the best football auction we've had, you know, in years. In a long time. Since, BS, yep. since BSC yep. auctions um, decided not to move forward with their auction. But I, I did pick yep. up a complete set of the 84 Seven Eleven, you know, round football, um, yeah, slurpy, slurpy ones, and and that's gonna finish my my eighty three, eighty fours because I've already finished the eighty three. So, okay, yeah, that's that's, 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 that's a good. lot of fun, a lot of fun to go find, right? It's not not expensive things, but you know, I, I like looking for stuff sure. that's just kind of oddball, but not, you know, it's not breaking the bank. It's just kind of a guilty pleasure, right? Yeah, it's uh, to me. It, it was always interesting to me. I, ha- I have a great love of oddball football cards and oddball football mm-hmm. stuff. And um, it's just there's so much out there, so much still being discovered on it. And to me, it's just it's a great it's a great collectible. So, and I'm really surprised a lot more collectors aren't into them. I know baseball collectors are heavy into oddball stuff, but football, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, they they tend to sh- shy away from it a little. But it is what it is, but I'm glad, uh, you know, you've, you've taken an interest in them and you appreciate them. And I know I know other collectors who appreciate the oddball stuff also. They're, it's it's a lot of fun stuff to collect, in and it's very interesting. All right, we're down to about yep. two minutes, and i gotta, I got to wrap things up. Last question, uh, the question we always ask, what advice can you give to a beginning collector? Yeah, well, I mean, my advice today is going to be a little different. I, I, First of all, I'm very happy to see so many kids rolling into the hobby. You know, you and I have talked in the past. There's a, there was a lot of hand-wringing and still is a little bit about what's going to happen when the baby boomers, you know, are all gone and all this collecting yep. and the next generations don't seem to want to collect and yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Well, they're, they're collecting differently than we were, um, but they're collecting, and that's a good thing, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, my beginning advice is to the beginning collectors is, you know, you know, be careful with the modern things, be careful about overpaying, ending up with a hot potato, and, you know, drift into vintage. Check vintage out because their stat's going to change. Their Hall of Fame, right. you know, right. nominations and, and accepted speeches are already done. They're, they're minted. Yep. Yep. They're gold. And there's some great yep. – history and great value in, in the vintage side of the market that I hope just like we did, you know, some of these kids that are, you know, looking at the modern side of things will drift into over time. And I, I also hope that it, when the market kind of collapses a bit, that there is so much distaste by some of the younger collectors that they go away, like we saw in the early nineties. So. Exactly. All right. We're out of time, Jeff. Thank you for being on. And hopefully we'll be back next week with another show. Uh, again, check out our website if you haven't, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Jeff, thanks again, and we'll be safe. Thank you, Bob. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.